wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome and thanks for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please share this episode and others with friends and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Today's episode may be confronting for some, but it's about a very important topic. It goes right to the heart of knowing who we can trust and what to do when our trust is betrayed. My guest has a powerful story to tell. She's a brave woman, and I'm looking forward to introducing you. What do you do when the person who should be helping you through dark times instead is taking advantage of your trust. Amy Nordhuse is an author and speaker who uses her experience as a victim of sexual abuse to help support and educate others. Her book, Preyed Upon, Breaking Free from Therapist Abuse, tells her story of abuse, escape and ultimate healing by a predatory psychiatrist and church elder. Today, she's here to share some of her story on Bleeding Daylight. Amy, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Your book takes readers deep inside your world and your thoughts. We learn that your trust has been betrayed from a very early age by an abuser. Do you believe that that shaped your thinking and your beliefs as you grew up? Oh, definitely. I feel like that kind of put me on a different trajectory. Sadly, that low self-esteem at a young age continues to plague us and continues to wreak havoc and unless we deal with it, it you know, far into adulthood sometimes. I also think that it made me vulnerable to sexual predators because um, this doctor was, I think, made number seven in my lifetime of people that had taken advantage of me. Basically, what it does is it strips you of your power and of your voice. In my book, I even say of your reality. You no longer have the right to your own reality. Your reality is now what makes the adults in your life comfortable. You know, I had the intuition and I had the awareness every time somebody was inappropriate with me, but I didn't have the voice and I didn't feel that I had the right to say no or to speak up or even to report them because I just felt like that they had more value than I did. So who was I to say something? And this is not about intelligence or or the sort of person that you are, because it's not like you're an unintelligent woman. You're, you're a very smart lady. And yet, at the same time, there's something that these predators continue to see in you, that, that sense of your own self, that leads them to think that you are a target for them. Is that right? It is. And it, it baffled me too, because I thought, how, as an adult, can I be manipulated? How, when I feel like I'm an intelligent somewhat normal person, could this happen to me? And, it, and it's sad, but it's those old childhood tapes that are still playing in the back of your head that tells you, who are you to say that an adult is wrong in this situation? Who are you to say that a pastor or an elder in a church would be wrong? You know, who are you to say that a, that a therapist would be in the wrong? And it's just, it's sad because you have the awareness and it's almost like somebody's covering your mouth with their hand. It's keeping you from speaking. It's like, you don't have that. You don't have that piece. And they know that and they prey on that. And I certainly want to delve into the story of this doctor who so badly abused your trust. But before we go there, I, I want to ask, what are the triggers that people should be looking out for 
we talk about grooming and we would imagine that, oh, that's just about children, but but obviously that is not the case at all. What are the things that people should be looking out for? What are those trigger signs for seeing someone who is attempting to groom someone, whether they be a child or an adult? You know, this is an interesting question because a predator like that has to groom their friends and family and community first before they can take advantage of a victim. Afterwards, after I got away from this abuser, so many people told me that they had a weird feeling or a suspicion or just found something odd, but obviously we didn't, nobody put all the pieces together. For example, my abuser also went to my church. He was an elder at my church and he encouraged his victims to come to that church. He would come over and hug me every Sunday after church and make that very obvious to everybody so that if I were to say that he crossed a line in some way, I think he does that so that people can say, oh, he's just like that. He's really, he's kind of touchy-feely. He's he's kind of affectionate. Um, it's just the way he is. So I spoke with a, a, another friend from my church who sat behind me and said, you know, I always thought that was so odd. For my abuser, you know, he was very, very gregarious and very kind of like acted like a child and it, and it was very, it threw, it threw people, I think, you know, they kind of didn't know what to do with him. And, and he seemed almost like, well, my pastor said like a bumbling grandfather type that would never hurt a flea. And so I guess when you do get that uncomfortable feeling, I would say to people, they need to speak to somebody else about it because who knows that somebody else didn't notice a different red flag. And I imagine those who are grooming children, of course, they're relying on the fact that everyone knows them and it's a case of, look, who are they going to trust, a child or me? And in this case, it's someone who can rightfully say, well, I'm a church elder. This is this is someone who's going through some some dark times. Who are you going to trust? And there's there's always that, as you say, this sense that they portray of, but I'm better than you. Yes, they're very outward. They're very out in the public. It seems like I hear that with a lot of abusers. They're very well liked. You know, he was on the prayer team. So they work all of this ahead of time. You know, this is all background planning to keep their cover. I find it interesting that we're, as we're talking about those who are predators, those who are grooming, there's all sorts of different devices that they will use to do that. But in this case, we're dealing with someone who is a trained professional. They have learned how the mind works. And, and I'm assuming he's using that against you and other victims as well. Oh, yes. You know, it's, it's really sad because when you step into a therapist's office or a psychiatrist's office, there are no nurses, you know, there are no witnesses. They can write whatever they want to in your chart. And, you know, whether they take notes or not isn't the point. The point is that you have very little to stand on. It's your word against theirs. And they can say that you're mentally ill or unstable. In my case, I think my doctor told his friends right after I reported him that I was delusional and that I had imagined it all. Luckily, people that know me well know that I'm not delusional and I don't have mental illness. But, you know, think about the people that might have a mental illness. And it's just, it's so unfair. It's so wrong. Take me back to that time that you first felt, I need some help. And when you were first introduced to this doctor, how did that come about? Well, and this is really sad, but when I first moved here, I saw him a few times and I got the gut feeling that something wasn't right with him and I stopped going. Fast forward seven years, I was in a new church 
my faith had come alive for me for the first time. I sort of felt like a naive new believer. I was really excited about that, really passionate about that. And he was a church elder, and I, I was ready to try to find a counselor, and everybody loved him, raved about him. My pastor trusted him, obviously, and, and I really highly respect my pastor. My pastor's wife recommended him, and I thought, you know, I had just been too hard on him back then. You know, I was new here, and I was probably just judging him extra harshly. And and yeah, he's a little weird, but does weird have to mean evil? Not necessarily. He, he's just goofy. And so... I decided to give him another chance. I have had kind of a lingering depression most of my life. I've had a lot of sexual abuse. It caused me a lot of anger, but I was turning the corner on that because I had found Jesus. And I thought that working with this very spiritual doctor was part of my of God's plan, part of my healing journey. And I thought I was right where God wanted me to be. So I was very naive at that time because of that. Didn't understand a lot about the spiritual realm. And this doctor kept much of the therapy in a spiritual realm, which is why he could pull off the multiple personality idea. I mean, I knew that was ludicrous that I didn't have that disorder, but he more presented it all on a spiritual level to where, I mean, anybody could kind of have it. That's what got me back there is really just... Again, trusting other people's opinions over my own and trusting other people's judgment over my own. And this this grooming that he undertook to take your trust and and to then abuse you, this happened over a period of time. How long was it before that abuse started? Of course, as I say, the grooming starts immediately, so he's playing into this right from the start. But when did the actual abuse start? I started seeing him in April of 2013, and the first major red flag for me was around Christmas time when he offered to rub my feet or my shoulders for a present. Of course, I just was panicked with anxiety. Felt I had felt no for for whatever reason. Like I told you, you lose your no when you're abused as a child. Didn't think that was an option. You know, I picked shoulders and I, and then that was so awkward and uncomfortable. I quickly changed it to feet just to get him farther away and just kind of made myself go through it and just sort of, again, thought he wouldn't be offering something if it's inappropriate. And you're just uncomfortable. You just have issues. You're extra sensitive, whatever. That's when the first red flag was. That was December. I got away the following July and you know, whenever he would do something really major like that, if he noticed it frightened me or threw me a little bit, he would slow down. So things would kind of fall back to a normal and then something else would happen. And we kind of went back and forth that way. Like, I think it was in near Valentine's Day. He made a comment that he brought my tea in a heart mug and I had that same pit in my stomach. But again, I was like, oh, he's just joking around. It's just a silly mug. Fast forward, it was... Around the spring, I started reporting to my close friend, you know, these different things that were happening that I didn't think were bad things, just thought they were, you know, a little different. For example, offering to dance with me. However, I thought that was my idea because I had told him that I imagined myself dancing with Jesus. So I thought he was trying to give me a therapeutic exercise. It was in May when he sexually assaulted me, and it was just like where the room just went black, and I just 
completely lost it. He just shoved his hands down my pants. And it's just really sad for me to have to tell you that I, that's not when I stopped going. I was able to convince myself that I had somehow set him up for that. You know, he was very skilled at what he did and he was very masterful in how he first got to sit close to me. That was his idea. But then it would seem like, well, it, maybe it was my idea because I kind of wanted him to sit there. And I thought it was my fault. I thought it was my neediness that got me into this trouble. And if I hadn't been so needy, hadn't wanted a father figure, then this wouldn't have happened. And so I eventually forgave him. Also, unfortunately, I told a close friend and she said maybe he was trying to teach me to stick up for myself. So I didn't tell the right person, clearly. I ended up going back. He started back up again in July and I was able to leave. So it was about a year and a half. And I know now that the grooming, like you said, started on day one when he would goofily and jokingly cover you up with an afghan instead of just asking you do you want to do you want a blanket or do you want to throw and tossing it to you he would cover you up with it and tuck it under your chin and he did that because you know it's almost like you become immune to it it's like he's just goofy like that and right throughout the book even from those early times when you're starting to to visit his office again and become reacquainted with him you're chronicling your thoughts and and there are triggers all the way and yet there's also this other side of your thoughts that are saying no no th this this can't be the case and you've been conditioned to trust him because everyone's saying no he's trustworthy so you're continually doubting your own thoughts and and the things that are triggering in your mind and i imagine that that's what abusers will play on constantly oh yeah he knew that about me before he started. And just imagine you're in therapy. So that's kind of where you share your, some of your deepest thoughts and feelings. And so, you know, you're giving them information that they can use. But yeah, I had such a, I had this critical voice that was just so mean and, and hateful towards me. And, and that, yeah, that's the voice you're referring to that maybe I'd think, well, that's kind of weird that he's doing that. And that voice would just kick in. Oh yeah. Like, there's something wrong with him and it's not you. Like you're a complete loser. You have all these issues. You're being oversensitive. You're being overdramatic. You're like so paranoid. And so I would just sort of like cower to that voice. It was like a bully. As things went on, you know, that voice kind of reversed. It was almost like I can't watch this anymore and started to kind of try to help me and defend me. And as it continued on, he, he started to ramp up the pressure, even declaring his love for you at different times. Yes. They have so many tactics that keep you trapped. And a big one is empathy on the part of the victim. And I'm very empathetic and um, very sensitive. And so when he would portray himself in these vulnerable ways, it was just, it really would tug on my heartstrings. And so he presented himself as, you know, he never felt loved, his his mom's alcoholism was he and his brother's fault. His dad was violent, which I know that's not true. He never had friends in school, you know, and so I began to feel like the mom and the therapist. And I felt sorry for him. And he told me that if I ever left, it would kill him. And he stopped charging me for sessions, which wasn't my idea. And I even brought it to the secretary's attention and said, look, you guys aren't getting paid. My insurance isn't paying right now because it's the first of the year. And he kind of smiled shyly and I knew, oh, okay, it's a gift. Well, again, I interpreted it as 
He knew that I had an issue with feeling expensive as a child and feeling like I cost a lot of money. He's trying to do this to make it up to me. Then fast forward, you start to feel guilty and you start to feel indebted and like, well, he's done all this for me and he didn't charge me and he, he, he was always good to me until he wasn't. And, you know, how can I just walk away from him? They use flattery. They use gifts. They make you feel special. I had longer sessions. They, they look for your voids and your weaknesses, and then they magically mirror back whatever it is that you need, kind of like a chameleon. You become so attached to it that even when you know they're starting to not do right by you, it's hard to walk away. And they isolate you. They make you feel like you're crazy. And if they need to, they go to threats. But the empathy and the guilt and all of those things and the feeling special, those were really powerful, like metaphorical gun to the head things. I mean, I couldn't leave and I didn't know why I couldn't leave. I finally knew that I was not going to walk away unless I told somebody and they could help me. And I sat at my pastor's house and the pastor's wife sat with me. My, my appointments at that point were three hours long. And so she sat with me for three hours and I just cried and cried because I still felt guilty. It was just the craziest thing. And when you first started to share what was going on with someone else, when you had that time at your pastor's home and speaking to your pastor's wife, what was the sense coming back from them? Were they trying to say, well, maybe you've read it wrong and then they realized, no, this is not the case? Or were they ready to accept your version of events right from the start? Well, the pastor's wife, she and I were really close. Um, I kind of saw her as like a sister and she was my mentor for the whole year prior. And she was the one that I was going to with these early things. Like he offered to rub my feet and he offered to dance with me and she minimized them just like I did. But then in May of 2014, when he sexually assaulted me, And I told her that I tried to tell in a roundabout way and she wasn't really hearing me. And I said, he stuck his hand down my pants. She said, well, maybe he was just trying to teach you to stick up for yourself. So I knew that she wasn't going to take my side. I asked her once I got out why she didn't see that as a red flag since she knew me well. And why wouldn't she run that by her husband? Like Amy said, the strangest thing today about this doctor And she said, I just didn't think I could go to the elders with just that. And that just that was so painful to me because, you know, people wonder why victims don't come forward. And if that, you know, what does it have to be to be more than just that? What would have had to have happened to make it a big enough deal to rock the boat and make other people feel uncomfortable? And that's just the sad reality is, and I don't blame her anymore, you know, and I, and I get it. It would not have been comfortable for her because the elders were too were in a position of leadership over the pastor. Fast forward to the day I drove to their house. I told her first and then her husband walked through the room, which was a blessing. And I, I told him everything and he believed me immediately. I'm sure he had maybe a little bit of doubts in his mind, but he, he made me feel heard and believed and he was very honorable. And he said, before I left that day, he said, he has to step down as elder. And I said, no, no, it's just something weird about me. You can, just let him be elder. Just, I just wanted you to help me get out. And you did. And, I, and I'll go about my business and no one has to know about this. And he was like, no, you know, that's not going to happen. He cannot be elder. And so I was lucky in that, that he believed me and he did the right thing. And he confronted the doctor 
a few days later. And then I moved on to the medical board and I reported there. And then I went on and I hired an attorney. And I was blessed with the medical board. This doctor had been in practice for almost 40 years, never had a complaint. And I thought they were going to just tear me apart. They were so kind and so respectful and believed me right away and took action. And they actually took his license permanently in my state, which they told me later was only the first time they'd done a permanent surrender of license in like 20 years. So all of those things were very validating. And then again, with my attorney and, and being believed and being fought for was also, I, w- I was blessed and lucky in that regard. Cause I know some people, especially when it involves the church like this may go to their pastor and are turned away or mocked or, you know, I've just heard horror stories. And this is the thing. We know statistically that the overwhelming majority of those who will accuse someone of assault are telling the truth, that you wouldn't come forward with that sort of information unless it was real. And yet there has been this history of people not being believed. So I guess for you to be believed in this case, as you say, it was validation, but an opportunity to, to move forward. You know, it's hard to admit that you're an adult and that you were duped in this way. It's hard to admit that you allowed someone to take advantage of you. It is embarrassing and humiliating. So yeah, for an adult to come forward and say something like that and not be believed, it's, it's crazy because we don't want to tell. I want to turn now to your healing because as hard as it is to tell that story of the abuse that you've been through, I guess there is that other side of it. There is that healing. How do you start to heal? How do you start to trust people when those that you should have been able to trust had abused that trust? Yeah, that is really hard. And it kind of comes down to a decision that I had to make. I spent the first I don't know, you know, 40 years of my life, angry, angry at God, you know, had walls up. So I was lonely. And once I became a believer and God came alive for me and um, healed me from that place, when this abuse happened, there was no way I was going back to that. In my book, I have a set of rules, the ones that that I got from childhood that were, you know, lies. And then I have a new set of rules as I'm healing that are based on who God says I am. And like one of those rules says something to the effect of don't let this hurt and anger force you back into that lonely dungeon. And so it was a decision that I'm not going to go back to that place. I knew that I had to forgive the doctor. I didn't want to. I told God that I'm happy to pray for the forgiveness, but I don't mean it. So I don't really know what the point is. And so I didn't know what to do there. And I was at an event and I heard a girl speaking about abuse that she encountered when she was younger and how God had told her to start praying for her abuser's salvation. And I thought, oh, I know this is for me. I know God's speaking to me. And I said, well, God, I'll pray for his salvation, but I don't want him to go to heaven. So I don't really see the point. And he just kind of worked on me on that. And I pondered that for a while. And I finally thought, you know, God didn't make evil and he doesn't make sociopaths or predators. What he makes is good and beautiful and perfect. And so I thought if God restored him to the person he made him to be, I I might be okay with seeing that person in heaven. And I just started praying that God restore him to the person he made him to be. I figured I would like that person, that if it was in his will, that he would let him go to heaven. 
I mean, and that took a long time and it took a lot of, you know, it took effort, but eventually it lessened and kind of faded away. I just wasn't going to be imprisoned by bitterness. I just refuse. And so as far as like trusting again, I thought it was kind of the same thing. Was I scared to see another therapist? Yes, I was. But do I think that all therapists are evil? No, I don't. So it was just sort of a decision to not go down that road. God had already shown me through my pastor and through the medical board and through my attorney that there are good men in the world. And so that, you know, that that helped as well along the way. I'm sure that it's a very difficult path that you're having to walk down because you're having to rewrite a lot of the story that you had come to believe about yourself right from a very, very young age. So those things that you had rehearsed again and again in your mind about who you were had to start changing. I guess that's a difficult but a very freeing process. It was so freeing. That's the word freedom in my book. It wasn't just that God freed me from this abuser. He freed me from low self-worth. He freed me from that bondage that I've had my entire life. I I was full of self-hatred and shame. I just thought I just was disgusted with myself for not leaving sooner, for even going back after I knew something was weird about him. I just started writing love letters to myself from God. And I wrote them in the form of poetry because I'm a writer, but I just wrote them and wrote them and wrote them speaking to myself as I know he would, but arguing back with what I think. I'm a failure, but look what I did, but look what I allowed, but, 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 and just spoke back as I thought he would. And I did that until his truth started to seep in, you know, the cracks of my armor. It was a process, but I noticed healing. I noticed the shame lessening and the guilt lessening and writing my book was another part, you know, of the healing. And it probably took years. It was a gradual process, but I don't feel ashamed or guilty anymore. And I know, I know that I wasn't at fault. It was so much fun to write the new set of rules. (laughs) It was, it was so empowering every time I discovered that I had come across a new one. And this healing that you've been through, you wanted to share that in your book. As I mentioned before, the name of it is Preyed Upon, Breaking Free from Therapist Abuse. And I'm sure that it's been helpful for others. As your book was released and people start to read that, I'm sure that there are people that start to say, well, it wasn't the same doctor, it wasn't the same circumstances, but I can identify with what's gone on and it's brought some healing for them. That must be incredibly satisfying for you to help others reach towards their own healing. It is, and it's everything. When I first set up my website, long before my book came out, it was just a step I was taking that I knew I needed to do as an author. And I had a a younger gentleman email me who was struggling with shame and guilt. He, he, he's an adult now, younger than me, but still struggling with the shame and guilt of being abused by his uncle because he felt he was old enough to know better because he was like 14 or 15. I said, yeah, and I'm like 41. We corresponded back and forth and he just thanked me profusely, you know, for helping him in that way. And it was just, it just felt so good. You know, if one soul feels less alone and less guilty and can forgive themselves. It is, it's everything. And when I read a review, again, it gives me the same burst of, you know, if I have 10 readers in the whole future of this book, that's okay. Because the people that have read it, it has impacted them in some way. And I had a friend tell me that she was in an abusive marital relationship and that she related to it as if it was, you know, the same thing, the low self-worth and 
it's not just about therapist abuse. And it's even not just about sexual abuse. It's it's about accepting the lies that we picked up as a young person from abuse or neglect or whatever, and allowing them to continue to dominate us in the future as an adult. As you say there, it's not just about that sexual abuse. You, you recount in the book early cases, even at school, where a teacher dealt with you harshly. It wasn't sexual abuse, but again, it fed into your feelings of who you were and your self-worth. And so there's many people that would identify with those sorts of things, the way that they've been brought up in a family or those outside influences such as a teacher. Are you finding that some people are, are starting to, to recognize that in themselves, even when there hasn't been that kind of sexual abuse? Yes. I have talked to so many different people. Most of them didn't have any kind of abuse in their past. And they're like, I have those same tapes. I have those same rules. So they can, you know, it can be created from anything. You know, I think about bullying. There's so many things in this world that make us believe that we're not enough and that there's something wrong with us. It reminds me, I went to a kind of a workshop thing in Dallas years back, and we all had to write down the negative voice that we heard in our head the most, the, the, the negative tape that played the most. And I think I wrote down something like, I'm defective or, you know, something like that, or something's wrong with me. And I think there was, I don't know how many of us, maybe 40 of us, they handed the mic around and we all went around and read our tape. And we were anywhere from age 18 to 60 something, men and women. Every single tape was the same. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I mean, we all had something along the lines of there's something wrong with me. So I feel like we're all walking around broken. I find it interesting that abusers will use that against people, that sense of I'm not enough. And yet when we look at it on a bigger scale, we know that we have an enemy. We know that in the grand scheme of things, we have a bigger enemy who is fighting to grasp our souls. And Satan is whispering those things to us every day. It's no wonder that we hear these things and so your freedom is not just freedom from the voices of a child, but it's freedom from the voices of the accuser and actually listening to the voice of the one who loves us and, and wants to save us. Yes. And, you know, there's times where I feel bombarded by negative thoughts or messages. And I'll, sometimes I'll even put my fingers in my ears and I'm just like, no, no, no. And I'll just, saying, I'll just start saying Jesus's name sometime. But we are constantly bombarded. He's constantly looking for a little way in. So yeah, we have to be really careful and really mindful of that. You mentioned that you had a website even before the book was released, and there is a place that people can connect with you and see more of your writings through the blog and, and connect there. What is the easiest way for people to find you online? Probably my website, which is www.amynordhues, A-M-Y. N-O-R-D-H-U-E-S as in Sam.com. If they scroll down to kind of the middle of my page, it'll say, you know, to stay connected, sign up here. And if they sign up there, I'll send, I send them some of my uh, photography with scripture. And I plan to send out the first chapter of my book for free to all my email followers. And on that website too, there's resources for victims. Some of my poetry, some of those love letters I wrote and, and links to where you can find the book. Amy, I want to say thank you for the opportunity that we've had to speak. I want to thank you for your courage and your boldness in sharing this story. 
as we've already mentioned, the whole idea of this manipulation of people is to keep people silent. And yet you've gone against that. You've said, I will not stay silent. And I know that this is going to be helpful for a lot of people. So I will put details of how to get in touch with you to your website in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net. But I want to say thank you for your time. Thank you for your courage. Thank you for sharing your story on Bleeding Daylight today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.